I'm increasingly crabby and curmudgeonly, and it's only getting worse. And it's, I'm aging like a dog, and my ability to pay attention to certain things is. Dogs age very gracefully. Okay, well, then I'm not like a dog. <laughs> I am name a less gracefully aging animal. Insert that here. All of which is to say, I need you to explain it to me one more time like I'm stupid. Yes. What happened with this bestseller that just happened? <laughs> what? There was a tweet by somebody yes. and then. So- yes. Okay. So I would first like to point out between the two of us, I am clearly the one that is aging the most. Like, how many cats do you have? Zero. Okay. I have two. How many fiber arts hobbies fiber. do you have? <laughs> when you say. Even just saying the phrase fiber arts yeah. has you ahead, I guess. Yeah. Um, I have two. I have two fiber art hobbies. And also, who? which one of us takes naps during the day? Not me. Yeah, it's me. So, first of all, check yourself. Okay. But second of all. Okay. So, this there, is... There's like a phrase people keep saying. I don't know the phrase. What, yeah. What is it? Bigless dickless. <laughs> What? Okay, uh, for those of you Let who me just are make sure not, Bigolus Dickolus. Do I have that right? Yeah, like Nicholas plus Big Dick. That's what it is. Bigolus Dickolus. Okay. Continue. So here's what happened. Mm-hmm. So um, the Hugo and maybe Nebula award-winning book from like five years ago. This or it's a novella. This is how you lose the time war uh-huh. uh, by Max Gladstone and Amal El Motar, which is a very beautiful book. It is like I think it could only probably be turned into film with the people who did everything everywhere all at once. So mm-hmm. like, don't wait for the movie. You have to read the book. It's yep. like whatever. Um, so <laughs> so. It, this is like a fairly significant work in recent science fiction literature uh-huh. by successful writers in their own rights who have come together. <clears throat> like this is this is a book that is not um, unrecognizable to science fiction readers, okay. but it is five years old. Okay. Um, so a relatively small fan account on mm-hmm. Twitter mm-hmm. of an anime. Posted about oh, it, no. yeah. The the so the account uh-huh. the 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 poster's username was uh, Bigless Dickless, and mm-hmm. he posted about to to his fan account about how great this book is. It's only four hours on Audible. Read it right now. He's not even going to tell you anything about it. Read it right now. Um, and then what happened is that people in that fan account were like, "Oh, okay, this is fine," but then. People who had already read the book and loved the book, because, again, it's not nothing in the science fiction world, Mm -hmm. also retweeted it because it is a book that one can very easily go feral over. And so a bunch of other people said, oh, yes, I also am obsessed with this book. And it skyrocketed to now it's like, I think, maybe like the third best selling book on Amazon, the entire website (laughs) right now. Um, I think the Italian version of the book has like an ad where they're putting the tweet from Bigalisticless on it. They're putting like, wait, wait, no, no. so yeah. They're putting the tweet on the tweet is now part of it's not just a thing that happened. The tweet is now in the copy somewhere. It's it's on I think the digital copy and it's on the marketing for it. It's not gonna be like on the physical yeah, book. Yeah. But there are <laughs> some indie bookstores that are printing stickers. Where it's, you know, like, if you know, you know, sort of thing, so where they're bit- putting it on there. Anyway, it's a thing that is probably going to be driving the marketing teams insane. So anime fan, um, anime fan account. Yep. Bigolus Dickolus. Correct. Um, does a tweet and suddenly a five-year-old book that... Is, like, hitting lists. Is, like, hitting yeah. lists. To it, be clear, like, not- this was award-winning and it, and it has been selling extremely well and has been popular for five years. Okay. But now it's like juiced again. Yeah. So all of that is very charming and funny, and yes. I enjoy the story. And also, 
what I'm experiencing right now is the yawning, sublime horror of what every publisher is going to take from this. <laughs> yes, it's <laughs> like, awful. <laughs> it's the because it's never the first thing. This charming. Yeah, it's going to be great. Yes, I'm picturing the the next tr- you know attempt yeah. at manufacturing this. How and can we get our be, own bigless dickless? I'm picturing, you know, like the, we need more pictures of Spider-Man guy, you know, like, <laughs> read our Nicholas Nicholas, like something like that. I mean, I think that the the takeaway that publishers should be taking from this uh-huh. is that, hey, maybe we shouldn't abandon our books from a season ago, two seasons ago, five years ago, because Laura, Laura they're not going to learn that. That's not what they're no, going to take. But that's from. the real. Lesson. That's a very nice lesson. That's that makes the real a lot one. Of sense. And no one will be doing. No. That. Instead, it'll <laughs> be like, what big account can I get? To do a very like online post that feels niche, but actually isn't, and like and and I think it's like important oh to note God. that this isn't just because like one dude posted about it. Mm-hmm. It's because one dude posted about it, and the way that he did it struck a chord and reminded other people who had loved it to read yeah. it, and then it like broke containment in a very organic so we and finally, exciting way, we but it required had... it having a base readership in the first place. So here's the problem I'm having now, and it's scaring me, is that I feel like we were about to hit a tipping point with regard to publishers finally realizing that Twitter doesn't sell books. Yeah. And No, it's TikTok. And now that's over. <laughs> Um, now yeah. publishers will be back in on oh if we can just get the right people to tweet the thing and it'll be all about who has what followers and all this stuff that I hate talking about with well, not I think that editors love it either but I hate talking about it with editors I think it's um, moved on though from like authors having followers and being able to move the needle themselves and is an, instead it's influencers we're, in, we're on to influencers as yeah. the way we publish books now I and mean if you go into Barnes & Noble there's an influencer table about like book talk and so okay. I have to stop you there before I have a complete meltdown on air, <laughs> um, which is to say welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane. With me, as always, is Laura Zatz. It's Bigless Dickless, Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. <laughs> um, we have a fun episode today. We We're going to talk about access and gatekeeping and all sorts of things that Lots tend to get feelings. the yeah. book blogosphere up and going um before we do any of that i don't know how about the basic rundown i'm dragging a little bit you're gonna have to yank me into the light bigless dickless wasn't enough to get you hyped that has made me less hyped if you can (laughs) believe it that is actually having the opposite effect um, that one might think um so anyway yeah what's going on yeah uh we've as always, we've got our office hours posted mm-hmm. for this month. So if you are listening to us and you think, hey, maybe I would like to ask Eric and slash or Laura a question directly or would like their take on something about publishing, mm-hmm. um, come to our office hours. They're free. They're easy to access. We put the link to the Zoom on Patreon, but it's not behind a paywall. Anybody can come. Um, and you know, if you think, Hey, maybe it would be interesting to get all of your Patreon, uh, content with critiques and mini episodes about stuff and the comps class I just did, uh, you're welcome to become a patron, but also it is important to note that if you cannot afford it, we will provide you access with no questions asked. So all of that, just while we're on the business end of the show, I do, I do want to talk about that for a second because it's like. I think that it's clear. I hope that it's clear. And I believe that we have earned the right for it to be clear that you and I tend toward free. Yeah. Right? We do a lot of free stuff. We. I mean, um, we would love to make enough money to cover our costs for this, but we. (laughs) And like value our energy, but like your access is more important than us covering our costs. We'll give you. We'll give you Patreon access if you can't afford it because it's information that we want writers to have. And if you need it, you can come to Office Hours if it's free. I guess my ask my ask is this. If you are someone who is – and I hope you are someone. I want you to be there. If you're someone coming to Office Hours but who isn't a patron or you're someone who's you know looking at this stuff, like give it a real thought. Like maybe – there's something else in this pile of material that might be useful for you, you know? Yeah. Like, we always want to, you know... And you d- are also welcome to, like... And, like, our our 
the the top tier for special content is at eight dollars. We have higher tiers, but that's just for like a bonus. Um, Next time for the ad, yeah. I'm just gonna read aloud ticket prices for uh, conferences. <laughs> no, but seriously, like if you like if you were like I have ten bucks for this, like you you could subscribe for one month and like download and like mainline everything yeah, and then leave. It, why don't That's people fine. Do that? I, I never say that aloud because like I don't want I don't want people to do that. I want them to stay subscribers. But like <laughs> you could just come in for a month and get what you need. I don't know. It just we want to like give people what they need. You can very easily take advantage of our deals. Please. And like get the information. We want and, you to have the information. Anyway, anyway, Whether we, or not it results in us making money and being able to like cover our, you know, stupid web hosting. Yeah, I got to get our fine. credit card fixed by the way. This is a real like business we're operating here. Our print run card is like expired. You already ordered new cards. Yeah, no, they're coming, but I haven't activated them yet. Oh. I'm like waiting in the mail. Anyway, th- that is yeah. all very boring. Um, it shows <laughs> what sort of stellar small business owners uh Laura and I are. Um, we we run our agency much <laughs> on a much tighter ship. I will just say that. Cuz we've got sort of like a goofy vibe on yes. this show. And then whenever people start Maybe someone who's familiar with us from the show starts working with us in an agent capacity. I feel like there's always like a moment of, oh, wait a second. These are like cutthroat people who are very serious. Yeah. And attention to de- yeah. <laughs> like, like they like yeah. they just anyway. like increase my advance by twenty thousand dollars. Yeah. For for like with nothing to bet against. Yeah. Um, Whatever. But let's talk about gatekeeping. Yes. Talk about gatekeeping. Laura. Um, start us off. This was something that I know was on your mind. Um, I certainly have thoughts to show me where we are. Yeah. So the idea that agents like agenting as a profession is a, a gatekeeper role has always been something that I struggle with quite a bit. And I think, you know, I've been thinking about why quite a bit lately. And a lot of it has to do with like online discourse and whatever. And we're not going to like dip into that because that's not really the purpose of today's discussion. Um, But it's it's helpful to mention that like for the first mm, seven years, I was working in traditional publishing. I was also working. um, I had a I had a day job that was helping authors self-publish to great effect. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I spent all day, every day, seeing the value of this different area of self-publishing and kind of exploring all of the ways that that was changing. Yes. And providing access to writers. And kind of in that role is how I became really passionate about, like, the teaching and the education side, which is reflected now in Print Run and the right. work that we do there. Right. Um, but I t- like to me the agent versus that sort of like shepherding in self-publishing roles were never um, were were never contradictory. Like to me, I I I have always been thinking about agenting and the work that I do there as providing access, just in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, imagine my surprise <clears throat> when I like really drop into the biz and a lot of the language and the structures of how agents do their work is instead framed beyond access and is instead framed as like gatekeeping. So I want to talk about that for a second. Like tell me what you mean by that. I mean, I know what you mean by that, but just elucidate it out loud a little bit here. Like when you say an agent, is functioning like a gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. And when people get, you're right that I, people say that all the time. All right? the time. Like it's, and they're not necessarily wrong, but I do want to engage with it a little bit. So what does it mean and how, what does it look like for an agent to function in that way? Yeah. So when I, when I say that I view agenting as an opportunity to provide access, what I, what I mean is that I am able to, find authors to partner with and and help make their books get out in the world yep. in a traditional sense. Like I am providing them access to advantageous book deals and, you know, my work where I spend having like tons of conversations with editors and and you know, my my different like sales position is 
providing them entry into this this very like tough industry okay yeah the gatekeeping aspect is not that i am finding people to work with and get them to have their books out there instead it's i am stopping people at various stages of the process from getting in like i am turning down their books i am judging them not sellable i am doing all of those things and in a lot of ways we do and there's no getting around this yeah I mean that is we do stand yeah. in as an intermediary between writers and publishers like one thing like if you want to publish with say a big 5 press mm-hmm. it's not necessarily I mean like, there are always exceptions to these rules but like it's not just should I get an agent or not is that is that sort of relationship right for me you mechanically have to like a lot yeah. of publishers don't want to work with unaged like it's we're just in that spot right like we could be the kindest hearted people in the world and many agents are not that and many are and who knows but like the point is regardless of how anyone acts or orients themselves the structure is such mm-hmm. that we are in between the writers and the publishers yes. right and so you can see how in a lot of ways people might start to see a gate there right like a a sort of like a, a funnel like it's an initial gauntlet and yes. the reason for and that is because more people are writing now and publishers now aren't going to be open to tens and tens of thousands of submissions every year they need somebody to vet it they've created the industry the publishers have where this position is required and that's the other thing right it's not as though like a lot of this job popped up specifically for the function of thinning down the submissions. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, again, like this topic is fascinating to me, not just because we're get, we get to do what we're about to do, which is like talk about how agents can be kinder to writers or orient themselves better, which is all really important. But like inherently, all of that is in tension with like. Agents exist because publishers would rather talk to representatives within the industry who have already done the vetting Mm -hmm. as opposed to everyone who's writing books and submitting. You know what I mean? And that means that there are parts of this job that are that involve turning some people away and letting a small percentage people through our specific little, you know, pipeline. Right. Yes, that. That is true. And, like, the difficulty with, like, the the gatekeeping kind of thing that I have always had is just, like, I'm just, like, some guy. You know what I I mean? Like, there is nothing inherent and, like, good necessarily about my taste or anything. Like, I'm a good salesperson. I'm a wonderful negotiator. I, you know, work really well with a certain type of author and like you know my taste has been good enough to sell a lot of their books but like there's nothing inherently like virtuous about this position in terms of like my consideration of art and who boy you would not get that impression the way people talk about literary agents right on the internet because it's because they provide access insane but like insane anybody can do this job like, like you don't even have to have a degree for it you can just decide that you're gonna do it <laughs> next time, this is what I, I want for people who are familiar with any sort of social platform it doesn't have to be Twitter. I always think of Twitter because that's the one I'm on. But like anywhere where you're seeing agents talk about their work, just remember that that is just some guy. You know, it is. like it's just a person who is doing a job. They're not there because like it's not, you know, they're not the troops. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's just like a person who has their own specific and limited subjective tastes and has and decided to like you know, work on nights and weekends for commission they don't about inher- art. Sometimes yeah. they know a lot, know more than you just because it's their job. And like, you probably know more about your job than I do. You know what I mean? But they don't come into the job with a specific, like blessed set of perspectives and, um, you know, some agents have really wit- bad taste. <laughs> Sometimes just, like, like, so yeah. this, the, and this is the tension, right? Is because we have this role where, we are in between and we sort of end up being sort of this 
stop to the process as a lot of people see it. And also, we're not, we don't come by that role through any sort of special ability or badge of honor. I mean, I guess like maybe, you know, we had to get hired and we had to like find our way in. So we had to do something yeah. right at some point. But good not- agents should always have like agency mentors and it's like a mentorship process. So it's like, not you, like you need that. You need to convince one other person <laughs> that you are worth teaching how to do it's this job. It's not like someone pulled a sword out of a stone. You know what I mean? Like it's just, I demystifying that. I think would go a really long way in bringing down the temperature in online discourse with regard to some of this stuff. But like, yeah, so it's not like fair, but it's just how it is, how it is. And so what I see happen a lot, Laura, with regard to like what people see as gatekeeping is an agent will it through some sort of media or through some way will express themselves and basically say, I'm seeing this and not that. I want this sort of book or not this, you know, this, you know, whatever. And everyone then takes that to mean, oh, this is what's being published. This is how it works. This is what, you know, capital T, capital I, the industry is now doing to us. You know, all these things. And this person, you know, this agent who is really probably only speaking for themselves, even if they don't think they were speaking for themselves, (laughs) they certainly are. Like, it just becomes, all of this is a way of saying, like, I feel like the most gatekeepy part of our job is that it seems like people ascribe an enormous amount of weight and and I don't want to say importance, but just like influence to what agents have to say about the industry. And it just that's where you get this sense that writers are trying to do this work of appealing to this smaller subset of people in this specific job rather than just thinking about their work and yeah. I don't know it just it just feels very warped to me you know and unfortunately like I can't like I'm I do this job because I believe in this job and I do believe that like my work in concert with the individual writers that I work with helps and benefits their careers in monetary but also like emotionally satisfying ways yeah um there's not really anything like I can't convince a publisher to like be open to unagented submissions. I can't do any of that. I can't also ethically cannot take on way more writers than I have the bandwidth no. for. I also no. ethically can't take on a project that is outside of what is known as my taste to editors because that is like how I sell things and that's how I make people money. Yeah. Um, and it's not ethical for me to sign things that, you that don't I believe do, you can sell. That I don't believe I can sell. And to be clear, and that is different than saying this is not marketable because I have a very small niche of what I am good at selling. So for example, I am somehow very, very successful in selling all types of queer romance of all subgenres. Sure. Um, significantly less successful with heterosexual romance. That's not to say I'm not open to it, but like there are like if I see queer romance, I know that I can to put it another way. Yeah, are the straights okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like, no. The answer is probably no. Um, but so I build in like all of these things about like, am I going to be serving this author or am I like going to yeah. be stretching too much? Yeah. Now, heterosexual romance is not me stretching too much, but like eventually you find an, that you have a niche. And so I, I can't really like change any of that. I can't change, um, you know, like what books I'm good at selling. But like, I think that there are things that agents can do to be more access than gatekeeper. So let's that's where I want to get next and I want I'm going to tee you up here. Yes. Because I think that one thing that also happens and this is this is less perception. Like what I've been talking about so far is like here's how people see agents that is not necessarily accurate. What I'm talking and this mm-hmm. is different. What I'm talking about now are real hurdles, mm-hmm. like real structural things that get in the way and I feel as though like there are certain parts of the publishing process that make it that skew toward certain populations instead of others and make it difficult for you know people with different 
you know, experiences and, you know, parts of their life to mm-hmm. get through, even from the jump. Forget, like... We're just... talking about the isms. Yeah. No, I mean, I yeah. just mean, like, there are there are things that happen in the publishing mm-hmm. pipeline that make it... I mean, it's difficult no matter what, right? Like, you could be... Like, in sports, we would say, like, you're the prototype, right? Like, you are the exact marketable thing that's going to sail through the pipeline easy everyone's going to love it you could be that and it's still a pain in the ass process right like it's still but no one is that and so so much of this process becomes difficult and it bogs down everything from like getting query information Mm -hmm. to submitting the forms to finding agents in the first place to doing any of the different things that you have to do to like get into this process so many of them feel they're like sort of they're very they're exclusionary in different ways yeah and that's where i think what you're about to tell us about yeah is like we are there's no and this is you can tell me if you disagree with this i don't think like when people say agents are gatekeepers i tend to nod my head and say yeah yeah we are and Mm -hmm. there's no getting away from that Mm -hmm. like at some point we are using our taste and discernment and judgment to let certain people in and keep cer- keep other submissions in people out, right? Yeah. Like, that is the job. But there are good faith ways to make sure that even within that framework, people mm-hmm. are all getting the same fair shot. Yeah. Right? And so that that's where I think we can talk now. Yeah. So I think the, the a really, really important thing to talk about first is is kind of education um because like functionally like a person can only have so many clients right and so i i take education very seriously and you know like that is reflected a lot in like all that we just said about print run at this at the at the top of this episode but also um there are a lot of things that we do to kind of lessen the the financial and time and location hurdles. So, for example, I love going to conferences. I love teaching people and meeting people one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that our agency will not do at conferences is take pitches. Yep. Because what that, what that is, and we've talked about it a little bit before, but people pay extra money who are already paying to come at this conference and maybe traveling – they pay for an extra 10 minutes. Usually it's 10 minutes. Sometimes it's eight. Sometimes it's five. Um, with a specific agent with the idea that you are going to pitch to them in person and maybe they will request it. First of all, querying is free. If somebody charges you money, like they're not a good agent. And the idea, like we don't usually, like we get an honorarium. We don't get paid like per pitch or anything like that. That money goes into that conference, which is like fine and good. Like I like perpetuating places for writing resources, but having somebody pay 30 bucks inside of just for access to me is bad. Well, what do we say all the time? Or we we have we used to say it all the time. Then we did a bunch of other stuff on the show. But now we're going to say it again. Never pay for access. Never pay for it. Right. And so like, what we do instead is you are welcome to pay for ten minutes to sit down and ask me questions. You can bring your query. We can go over it um, because we're not going to pay for access. Right. Kind of like same with the query show. Like nobody pays to show up on the query show. We kind of pick them random. And yes, it's pay to access, but also like if you can't afford it, we give it to you, sort of thing. And it's um, but it's it's access, it's access to information. Like the yes. quer- the query show is not our inbox at right. our agency. It's not as though we are reviewing those queries for publication, you know what right. I mean, or like representation. Yes. Like it's something very different. Yeah, but also like you know, yes, I think that people should be paid for like the classes they build and the the work that they're teaching. But also yeah. like at the end of the day, if I'm comparing like. Do I get paid $75 or do these people have information that they probably wouldn't be able to have another way? Yeah. Yeah. Then I'm going to go for the people getting access. And the the education, like it also comes with investing a lot more time for like nuance instead of rules. And it's also you get like in the scenario you described where you're talking about where you're giving someone like a critique as opposed mm-hmm. to the binary yes or no that 
people think that they're getting a leg up on by paying to come in. And I'll just say off the top, and I'm sleepy and crabby and <laughs> feeling a little bit messy. I think that paying for pitches at conferences is basically a scam. It's at a this huge point. waste. I think it's the way I think it's an advertised thing that gets people excited to go to conferences, and it's like the primary thing that people use to get you in the door. And um, I think it's I think it's bad, and I think it's not a don't go to conferences because you see the opportunity to pitch people in person. If you if you're there for other reasons and that's an option and you're not paying a bunch extra for it, why not do it? Yeah. But like that should not be the reason you like book a hotel and get on a flight or even mm-hmm. just go spend a day at a place you bought a ticket. What it's just silliness and I'm sure there are people involved in conference organizing that listen to this show and I mean I don't know what else to say. I think it's a bad way to structure the event and um Anyway, I'm just feeling feisty today. So I, but like, I will also say that I'm way less drained at the end of the day of doing 10 minute slots for critiques than I am to doing pitches. Yeah, because it's exhausting. It's like speed dating, saying like, no just to for, people. Like, yeah. it it sucks more for the writer because you're the one with something at stake. But like taking pitches is not fun. Just but, so people know, like it's in person like that. You have to say no to people in like strangers in person. It is difficult, and it is like. There's a it is a lot of work and I know that is gonna like fall on it's gonna sound a certain way like because again I understand that the person with something at stake in that exchange is the writer who's looking for something and is trying to you know and showed up trying to pitch you know something they poured their heart into as opposed to me who's only heard about it for a few minutes like I get it it's worse for you guys but it sucks on our end too it's bad for everyone like it's just it's not a good it's well, not a good dynamic but and, what is useful is like not letting any form of having paid access and instead using those moments to have real nuanced constructive education so like and that i think like it's it's really 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 important for agents if they are capable and and good teachers which not everybody is but like if they are good teachers it's very important Um, If they are going to be teaching, which is how I consider like I consider it a response, like a professional responsibility, because that is how I can help way more people than my small boutique list. Um, And like if if agents are listening to this and you uh, and you also consider it a professional responsibility, consider that it is fundamentally ethically dubious to teach publishing and the business of publishing without room for understanding like nuance and the reasoning behind the way that things work. Yeah. Like if like it is such a barrier to access to say, well, simply books can't be a hundred thousand words in this category. Because paper is expensive and because people don't want to read this because phones exist. Yeah. And, like, there is always an exception in publishing. There's all, like, every single decision is a confluence of so, so, so many tiny factors that that is, like, irresponsible. And what you're going to do is you're going to have people, primarily women and people of marginalized identities, going, oh, no, like, I can't do this. I don't have any hope. I can't submit to this person because my book is a hundred thousand in two words. There's a lot of self-selecting and out. That... There's a lot of self-selecting out that is not like straight white dudes. Like, <laughs> oh, they haven't self-selected out. At... Never. <laughs> they They've never, never self-selected out of anything. A day of their <laughs> yeah, a day yeah, yeah, in their yeah, lives. Yeah. And so, if we're talking about access and providing change and seeing like good, exciting, innovative stuff that can hopefully like shift the needle a little bit, that is a really important thing. And that kind of brings me to. Um, my next kind of observation, like yeah. a way that you can be an access point instead of a gatekeeping point is being really fastidious about how you present your wish list of things that you want to see. So presenting them is not absolutes. So I was going to ask you yeah. about that. I want to because this is an important one, I think. And it's one that when you first brought it up to me, mm-hmm. didn't make immediate sense. Yeah. Like when you say that there is an access issue mm-hmm. around people talking about the sort of books they want. In other words, like the manuscript wish list, you know, the here's what I'm looking for, yeah. that sort of conversation. You see some like bad patterns in that. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying? And like 
I'm curious. Like, t- talk to me about that. Like, so what? going back to that, like, self-selecting out. Yes. The saying, you know, by going into too deep specifics, or I think maybe, like, overusing or misusing, like, the manuscript wish list, like, hashtag or something, yeah. we're being overly specific. Um, that g- gives a lot of writers reason to say, mm, no, this isn't for me. Um, you know, I have requested so many more projects that like I have a line in my in my wish list where I like I I list all of the categories I represent and have my general taste in each of them and then I say but I really really love working in things that are cross genre so if you have anything that crosses several areas of my list send it to me which which gives permission to kind of go beyond to the this is specifically what I'm looking for and gives people permission to go oh I'll give it a shot and I think that that is Apart from that being a nicer thing to do and something that – because it, was like, I, it comes up a lot, especially when people talk to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something – there's a version of this question I would say nearly every office hours I've ever had, yeah. for instance, where a writer says, you know, they have – there's such a hyper focus on what category and genre yeah. their book is for good reason because that's like – how we talk about like I understand why that happens and it's usually very very good to have exacting opinions about what your book is and why it's that way and and, and functional reasons like yes. I don't know the people who do like book club fiction yeah yeah, yeah. no you know? it is real no but it's also it's also not fully reflective of how we books think work? or how books exactly like it's just not a total, book is so much more than so a list leaving room for saying if you're not sure. If it sounds like you might be a fit, but you're not sure, send anyway, and I'm not going to, like, blacklist you for sending me the wrong... Which, you know what I mean? Like, it's... There's a lot of room for that, and I think, you know, the self-selecting out part is something that... You know, we talk a lot about, like, shooting shots, right? We love to shoot shots. Like, get your shot up, you know what I mean? Like, go for it, instead of... And, yeah. and it's our job, I think, to create the space for people who have yeah. worked very hard on something and maybe haven't been told yes a bunch of times like certain other people in the industry are for them to feel as though, yeah, no, I'm going to get a fair shot doing this and I'm going to get a. But it works the other way, too, where it's like if we leave that space open, we can have looser and more creative ideas about what is a book that's the right fit for us, which changes our tastes, which which makes them more innovative and more exciting, which will hopefully lead to signing more of those projects, which then we can sell. And like there's a way that overdoing, like analyzing our tastes and how to communicate that, like there's a way that that limits both writers and us. Yeah, no, I mean, I can tell you personally from experience that like my relationship with like my query pile I'm betting is pretty different than most agents mm-hmm. like for because just to put it bluntly most of my clients were not from queries no you, know you commission I mean? like nonfiction I commission I go find people I am talking to people in separate ways about things like the as opposed to someone who works mainly in fiction like I find a lot of my people through means other than my query manager page, right? And I have had the thought more than once in my life, in my career, that, well, maybe I just shouldn't even have a submission pile. Maybe Mm -hmm. I shouldn't even do queries because they, you know, I mean, most of them, I mean, this is not a secret either, so people shouldn't be too alarmed when I say, like, I don't want most of the things in my inbox. No, nobody wants most of the things. I don't want probably... 90% 90% of the things in my inbox like that is so, such a lower number no, than you, mine but that, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm hedging you know what I mean? but that's what I'm saying like it's it's I've had the thought oh this isn't necessarily an efficient process for me this isn't something I should even do I should close off this pipeline and I never have and I'm never going to just because of exactly what you just described where I think it is an ethical responsibility on the part of anyone in publishing who makes um decisions about representation or acquisition or anything like that to make sure that they are giving like due thought to being surprised or taken off guard or being allowed to be shown things that you didn't know that you want because you talk about 
you know, the dangers of interrogating one's own taste and how you can sort of become very, you know, self-selecting and all mm-hmm. like that is a danger that I feel all the time because so many of my books start with me literally like a huge part of my list right now is stuff that at one point I sat down with a notebook and I said, okay, I want a book on X, Y, or Z. And I jotted some things down and I said, okay, here's some people I could reach out to. Like the books were not my ideas, but a lot of that commissioning impulse, it came from me first, right? Like I was the one generating that. No one yeah. had shown me something up front. And that is a process that absolutely leads itself to, well, am I the only voice I'm listening to? Mm-hmm. And that is a danger. I think it's bad. It's something that even when I do that work and I love doing that work, I have to push back against. And the way you push back against is you leave room for people to send you things that will surprise you or that can show you something that you weren't necessarily thinking about. And I love it. Like it's and and apart from loving it or anything else, it's I think it's really important because how else does the industry change in the way we want it to without leaving room to encounter things we hadn't encountered or weren't necessarily thinking to encounter, you know? Yeah. And it's just you have to be willing. You have to be willing to play ball. And I know that there are agents who don't. Like, I, I know some agents who don't have a – who don't look at submissions and things like that because they find their clients through other means. And I get it, but it just – it strikes me as wrong because you're just not – you are closing yourself off from the sort of work and the sort of people who already get closed off a bunch mm-hmm. by media in general and especially publishing, you know. And I think that that is a danger that anyone who is trying to do this job ethically has to, like, actively work to confront, yeah. you know. And, and like, one of my frustrations fairly recently is like experiencing my own levels of frustration with that where like people are wanting particularly like we need diverse books and we we want like for example something that i talked about a few weeks ago like we want books with neurodivergent protagonists but then because like that is just an idea and rather than like sitting and experiencing books with for example like a, uh, you know, by a writer with ADHD or, yeah. you know, a, a character and an author who both have autism or something of the sort. Um, you don't understand how the art is different. <laughs> right. And so then you are like just like saying, oh, no, we want you. You're great. Like now is your time. And then not doing the work to yeah. like actually create space for it. Um, right. And, like, we've seen that with, um, like, black writers. We've we've seen this. Like, we've seen it all over the board, there's essentially. A certain, there's a certain dynamic that happens, I think. Maybe this is, like, choppy water or something. <laughs> there's a certain tone to agents saying, I want X type of book from X type of marginalized, you know, person, identity. Yep. That has the effect to me when I hear it of they're basically like snapping their fingers and hoping it appears in front of them on a tray. Yeah. You know, as opposed to like you're saying, like the reason, you know, you have to go find some of this stuff. Yeah. Like you have to. And the to, art is different. Like, yeah, like it's not just the same book with like, you know, an autistic writer. It's yeah. not going to feel the same. It's not going to be the same because it's not the same. And that is so that's the art is different is a point I want to drill into a minute because I do think that and who knows what we're talking about overall on this episode at this point. I think it's all interesting. (laughs) I'm not sure how it all ties together. But um, the point about the art being different, I think, is cool because we love that. Well, we love that. But it's also you're right that there's this moment always and I experience it across different vectors in my work, too. But um, where Person X says they're looking for a type of book. Oh, we want, you know, neurodivergent writers. Mm -hmm. We want that sort of stuff. And then you send them the thing and 
they don't connect at all with what's actually on the page. Yeah. And it turns out that when the rubber actually hits the road, they're much more comfortable with what they'd been. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's or, not, or it's they think that it is underrepresented, whatever it is, um, yeah. you know, race, yeah. sexuality, et cetera. Yes. They think it's not enough or it's not presenting in the way that they want it God, to. I find that so weird. I, just, <laughs> I find that to be such a strange line of conversation. Yeah, when... but that wouldn't happen. See, the thing yeah. is, is like it yeah. would happen. It would still would happen yeah. because like some people are assholes and they let anybody do this job. But like <laughs> they but like it wouldn't happen in the same way if we structured our whole systems to like maybe it's it makes us spend an extra 10 minutes a day mm -hmm. but it allows access and invitation in a way that it wouldn't be before well and as i think about it like one byproduct of doing the things we're, the way that the industry does them now is it has this effect of commodifying people's identities yeah. right because rather than just letting people giving people a fair shot on their own terms and reviewing them in good, giving the same space to folks on an even playing field. Instead, you've like created this one single slot yeah. where that you are trying to fill with something that presents it in the exact way you think is sellable. Yeah, like and oh, that, I already have my black author. Yeah, like that, that's what I mean. Like it's I've so actually weird. like heard that it's from so other weird. people. It's it's just it's so strange, and it's like this really warped. Look, there's no other way to put it. It's like this weird liberal impulse to just like take identity and make it into something very like sellable as opposed to just yeah. like human and what it is. And it's like the the version of this that I see all the time is like I work on a lot of political books. Right. Um, and I talk to editors and I, you know, I'm pretty upfront with what's going on over <laughs> on my <laughs> corner of the world. And I'm like, look. I have a lot of stuff that is fairly radical or is... They're commies. Let's just say it. They're commies. <laughs> like, we've got, you know, I have things that are not necessarily represented in the perspectives you hear on NPR and other, you know, media like that. And everyone's always like, yeah, okay, sounds cool. I'll read it. And then you show it to them. And very frequently the response is... Well, I don't know who would buy this, or I don't know how I get this through my conservative boss, right? And it's it's just the same thing, right? It's like there has to be there has to be more than lip service, like, and mm -hmm. not that those um, those either of those responses. I mean, the one like, about the boss is really annoying, but like, but the editor is still trying. It's yeah. like, oh, I have all the time. I would bet that I. I would love to know numbers from other agents about how many times they've gotten a book through an editor, as in editor loves it, wants to go buy it, and then gets told no at Edboard, mm -hmm. which was something, I don't know how else to put this. I didn't think that happened when I was an editor. Like I worked at two different houses in was in acquisitions meetings, was doing acquiring myself for, you know, at a couple different places. And, like, the idea that a publisher or the editorial director, whoever it is that has the yes or no stamp, was just, like, frequently saying no to their own editors trying to buy books. Like, it it didn't, it rarely came up. Instead, the conversation, if the person hated it, the conversation was, how can we tweak this? What can we ask? Like, it was less of a you can't do this and more we need to refine this a little bit, sure. which is very which is a very helpful thing. Like some you know, when an editor comes back and says, We want this, but here are some of our publishing thoughts about it that need to tweak. I'm always grateful for that conversation because that is an attempt to make the book better. But no, I get told, I get told no after the editor all the time. Like I'll and it's usually like a generational gap thing, you know, like I talk to people, um, you know, we've talked about this on the show too like it's always really good to talk to like associate editors mm -hmm. and younger people because they're more receptive they're engaged they're hungry i think it's probably fair to say that they're more aligned with some of the political ideas that show up on my list like all of that and they just get told no a surprising <laughs> amount by and I, I just find that very strange but i get told so in fiction yeah i get told way more even like at Edboard, but also like in the usually what happens is one editor will love it they'll send it around to the rest of the editorial team to get their support 
and then they'll go to ed board. Yeah. And like I've even had the rest of the editors say no. And it is overwhelmingly uh, the case that the books that fall at ed board or right before ed board are books by marginalized yeah. authors. Yeah. That's no, I mean, just how it works. And so, I mean, I just think as we loop this back toward like access and gatekeeping, I mean, I just think the the fundamental point is making our submission processes less restrictive Mm -hmm. and less siloed and more in the way of how do we make sure that everyone's getting the same hearing because there's no there is no avoiding yeah there's no avoiding this next part i'm sorry but there isn't at some point a human being is going to look at your work if you're a writer and they will be making a judgment call on it and that's that's just how it's how it's going to be like there's never going to be a model where a public someone at a publishing house or someone at an agency isn't going to be making a subjective decision whether or not to let the book continue moving forward that's just how it is but we can change the processes that lead up to that and go into that such that that decision is made on equal grounds and is given you know a fair hearing and all all these sorts of things that don't really happen at at the moment in a lot of places and I don't know. Okay, so even even if an agent like listens to this episode and is like, "Well, I don't want to stop doing pitches at conferences because I think they're helpful." Okay, I don't want to change my wish list language because I think it's helpful. Okay, there <laughs> there is still like other things that will take literally zero effort that will still like achieve some sort of equity here. Like yeah. for example. Put it on your fucking website that you respond to all queries and what your timeline is. Like, stuff like that would be stuff, so stuff like that, where it's just like like basic like respect in communication. Because the thing is, is like, you know, a cis straight white dude might be totally fine being, you know, waiting six months to get a response. But like if you have an author who is already being told that their work and their art don't belong here, and then you make the process super opaque and make them feel like they're ignored and forgotten about, like it doesn't matter if you end up signing them or not because like that is contributing to an overall hostile environment for that writer. The opaque part would just be so easy to do away with. Like, I know some agencies Take are, 30 seconds and write one sentence on your website. Yeah. That's and, it. And, you know, I've heard agents talk about, you know, they have this policy where they work where they have to respond to things and, you know, there's like accountability internally for making sure you respond to queries under a certain time frame and same with, like, manuscripts and stuff. And we I, love that. And, like, that sounds... That's hard. Like yeah. that can be difficult, especially when stuff piles up. But I do think that's better. I mean, I think that it it creates a process for people yeah. to know where they're at in the system. You know, like it's the long silences and the waiting yeah. that I think really make publishing this like mysterious black box. But even that, if you can't do away with the silences, you can say even like this is my goal frame. Like we have yeah. on our website, this is our goal yeah. frame for the different yeah. stages that you're at. Yeah, we will try to get to you within this amount. But if if we don't. We're still going to get back to you. Like, that's the thing. It's like, it's the promise. And, you know, other things were like, make it easier and quicker for people to submit to you. Because, like, if you're a fucking query manager page, I'm so cranky about this. I've been cranky cranky about this for years. You're very cranky. Um, if, If your query manager form has you repeat all of the information that's already in your query and it and it takes 15 minutes to do it like what's not gonna happen like you are you are wasting somebody's time like you are like it might be free to query you but their time is valuable yeah and you can get that information at a later date once you've already sorted through what fits for you just in the thing itself yeah that's the other part it's like Chill, like just, you know, like thinking about, okay, my process is optimized if I have all of these extra questions and can sort through them. Okay, but can you consider like spending a little bit longer on each query and making it slightly less optimized for you in like to benefit literally thousands of other people? I also question the premise that that stuff makes 
the actual work of flipping through queries any easier. Oh, it doesn't. Like, it do- like <laughs> I went. Like maybe you can sort through. I things, think the, but... I, th- I sometimes think the real reason like there's so many hoops is because it reduces the number. Like, which is exactly what we're talking about. Like, why are you trying to reduce the number procedurally? Like, yeah. that's just not. If you need to reduce the number, the way is not to do it on a procedure level. It's to, like, close to queries for a few months out of the year. Yeah, simple. Like, that, like, that way you're still managing your own workflow, but you're allowing right. and inviting people to come to you. And you're providing that access, even if eventually you're going to be giving, uh, you know, a judgment on your personal workflow. Yeah. Um, but like, and none of this is like gonna fundamentally like shift any agent's work or anything. But what it might do is if you do all of these things and you actually like consider for like two seconds, the labor and the work (laughs) that writers are doing, like it'll, first of all, it lets you be more creative and better at your job. It also you know, like lets you do more good in this industry than just the books for the individual people that you can sell. Like none of this is bad. Yeah. I mean, I have a confession. Um, It's probably not that surprising one for anyone who has followed my feed or anything I've ever said on this show. But like, I hate talking about this. (laughs) I talking about queries and the submission pipeline. Yeah, I've been trying to get you to do this is like episode the for like three weeks. Miserable paint drying shit for me, and the reason, and I think all the time, and especially, especially with regard to what feels like every single day online, there's like a new discussion about the problems with querying mm-hmm. or like someone's anxieties about it, and it just makes me like at first like sad. It's like how could we? How come we're not talking about other things? Why are we spending so much time? on such a silly little work email, which is what we call queries all the time, if you listen to our query show. Because um, it is but, just a work email, yeah. But the reason I think it's important to do, like where I've and eventually landed with this stuff is no matter how much I personally don't like discussing it or talking about it. It's not about you, Eric. The re- exactly, no, I mean, that, that is what it is. I mean, the reason that I do think it's important to do shows like this and to talk about this stuff and to try to push for something different is because undeniably this stuff is making writers crazy. Like it's it's a process that is not working for and them. It's and it's also like not, messing with their careers. That's what I mean. Like it's just like I can sit here all I want and say it's really boring to talk about the submission pipeline again, but that doesn't mean that like you can't hand wave it away because this is the reality that like this is what is in front of people and the fact that it is made to be so exclusionary in so many different ways like probably we could talk about other stuff if this process didn't suck so bad for people you know what i mean so it's like let's make it better and then i don't know it's just it's such a it should be rather it should be such a mundane thing this should just be oh i sent there should be very clear processes. It should be I submitted this form, I sent this stuff in. Now I wait. I know how long I'm going to wait. I know all these different things, and I'll be able to make judgments about my own work and my next step accordingly. But it's not that right now. Instead, it's like you're pitching things into a black box and hoping something yeah. comes back out, and that is understandably making people upset and angry. Yeah. And I wish that it was different because. Every day I log on and see the same conversation again and again and again and again. And while I wish that we were talking about other things, what I really wish is that the fundamental problem that people keep pointing to that would be so easy to fix on our end, on that, the agent end, that somebody actually would does just something be different. It? Like it, yeah. And it it's just makes me, I don't know, it's yeah. like if we want to advance as a field a little bit, if we want to move the conversation in a different way, like this stuff has to be addressed, you know? At the end of the day... No matter how many times we say, well, we have to put our clients first because they're our clients and we're working with them and they make us money. And and no matter how many times we say, like, we don't get paid reading queries. We have to do it on nights and weekends. Like, none of that comes in front of, like, how inhospitable agents make this entire process to to writers. And (sighs) that is our rant we went way over. <laughs> we did go over. Oh, well. That, what are you going to do? That is, we're nothing. We're not going to do anything. Uh, that but is that, right, Laura. That is our that is our rant for the day. Um, if 
agents or agencies, I know there are lots of you who do listen to this. Um, like, just do it. Just do the things. Just Don't do yell the at things. me. I'm frail. I'm old. <laughs> I'm sad. <laughs> just leave. Yeah. Throw me a bone here. Yeah. But also, like, I am now actually sort of hyped to spend the rest of the day on my porch in my yeah. hammock reading submissions yeah. because. Turns out when you're not thinking about like, oh, I'm just like trying to like get through these and they're so obnoxious and I'm not getting paid for this. Like when you actually look at it as like an opportunity for like fun and excitement and discovery in your work week, they're great. Yeah. Turns out writers are fucking great. Imagine that. Imagine that. (laughs) Anyway, um, you know, if you (laughs) head on over to Patreon or email us at printrunpodcast at gmail.com if you want some like teachy stuff that we do otherwise we will see you back here bye